powerful words of Scripture, Jesus, his mission. Encountering Jesus this evening, our journey of encountering Jesus takes us to his Sermon on the Mount. We uh, encountered him in story and on the road to Damascus and different ways, and we're going to encounter him this evening in something that he preached, something that he spoke out in the Sermon on the Mount. My introduction to the Sermon on the Mount was, I mean, I probably had heard it before, but what it really was was when I was 11 years old. I had a Sunday school teacher, Dale Miller, Bud, everybody called him Bud. Bud Miller, and then he seemed like an old guy, but as I think about it now, he's, he's only about 10 years older than me, so I was 11. He must have been 21 teaching our Sunday school class, these young guys. And this is totally not the message, but let me just put in a plug, guys, young guys even. You can make an incredible impact if you're willing to do so in the lives of young men. Bud made an incredible impact in my life. Another guy, Wilbur Shetler, he, he was about the same age, was a Sunday school teacher of mine. Oh, man, step up. <laughs> young men and women, step up and teach those younger. It's, 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 yeah, it's incredible. Anyway, Bud, through this, I, I don't know if our lesson was on that, that particular year or what, but he wanted us to memorize the entire Sermon on the Mount over the course of the year in Sunday school. And so what he did is he, he promised us five silver dollars if we would memorize the Sermon on the Mount that year in Sunday school. And I did it. I, you know, I should have. I, recently I was going through our, my file at home of stuff and I came across this envelope from Bud Miller with five silver dollars and I still have it. And quite frankly, since then. That was impactful for me. The Sermon on the Mount has always had a special place in my heart and has always been a meaningful uh, part of Jesus' ministry in my life. There are a couple of verses in Luke chapter 19, and I appreciate what you read this evening and, and how the people, uh, their eyes were fixed on Jesus as he was teaching. And then the reaction was, oh, you know, who is this guy? There's another reaction recorded in Luke chapter 19, I, uh, I think it is, yeah, Luke chapter 19, where it says that Jesus taught daily in the temple, and the priests and teachers of the law and other leaders plotted how to kill him, but they couldn't because all the people hung on every word he said. Can I say I want some more of that in the church today? The people hung on every word. He said, what would that look like in our fellowships, in our churches, if our benches were filled with people who hung on every word of Jesus, who opened the scripture in their homes and in their private times and hung on every word of God? What, what, what would that look like? Oh, God, do it among us. We live in a time where it seems like people want to be as biblically illiterate as they can possibly be. <laughs> they would never say that, but while still claiming the name of Christ, claiming to be a Christian. Oh, that we would hang on every word of Jesus. One of the things one of my pastor friends in Ohio told me, this was a couple of years ago, just going through the COVID and all the swirling mess of that. And then on top of that, there's racial tensions and, and all that goes on with that. And then the political things, just uh, all the things that happen with that. He said, Brian, you know what I have come to realize? 
that my people are being discipled more by Fox News than they are by the Word of God. Ouch. I'm sure that doesn't happen in southern Michigan, northern Indiana. That's just an Ohio problem, right? <laughs> and I wonder what, what would be said of us? What, what would be said of Riverview? Do we hang on every word of Jesus? Do we hang on the word of Scripture, on the word of God? Or do we hang on the word of our favorite news channel or our favorite political talking heads? I'm sure it didn't happen here, but I feel like in Ohio we missed a golden opportunity these past few years to be salt and light. That's where we're getting to in the message today. But to be salt and light and a witness because rather than rising above all that swirling conflict, it felt like too many of us crawled in the mud in the culture wars that were going on and, and got engaged in that in a way that, that was not helpful, was not healthy. Rather than fixing our eyes on Jesus, pointing people to Jesus, this is not new. At the time that Jesus preached this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, factions existed in the larger culture, of course, but also in the religious community. Some were liberal, some were conservative. All claim that their view of Scripture and their view of the law and their practice of their beliefs was the right one. Some were roiled in attempts to get out from under control of the Roman government. Others were in bed with the government. And into this, Jesus speaks. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And he speaks about this entirely upside-down kingdom. You know, we might expect him to say and want him to say, stand up, you know. Fight for your right. Fight for your beliefs. Take control. But he preaches this upside-down kingdom where those who are persecuted in all sense of how the world would look at it, they're, they're being stomped on, they're being persecuted. They are actually raised up, blessed in his kingdom. So in this, after this context where he preaches the Beatitudes, we call them in this first part of the sermon, he talks about this upside-down kingdom, this totally different way of looking, thing, looking at things than we normally would when we think about the kingdoms of the world. And then he speaks into this in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 5. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus uses two dynamic images here in describing us as believers, in describing how we should influence our world, in describing how we should live in this context of political turmoil, social unrest, factions in the church. He describes this is how you should live. You should live as salt and light. Why? <laughs> Why salt and light? Why would he call us to be salt and light? Let's talk about salt for a bit. How many of you like salt? I like salt so much I like salt on my salt. 
I, I have a sister-in-law, Rita, who has tried to be my conscious, uh, uh, conscious on, on salt, like to the point that I don't even want to sit close to her when we're at a family gathering or at least wait till she's looking the other way to put salt on my food. Problem is she's coming over to our house on Thanksgiving Day and turkey needs salt. Actually, I've gotten better. I have some issues with high blood pressure, so I've gotten better with it, I think, right? So why salt? Maybe in our culture, Jesus would have to say, you're the healthy salt substitute of the earth. No, I don't think he would say that. There is a purpose of salt that we're aware of and that I'm talking about, the flavor, how it brings out flavor, the taste aspect of salt. And there's the, then there's the aspect of salt that Jesus' listeners that day would understand something that we're not as familiar with, and that is salt as a preservative. There was no refrigeration available at that time, so salt was used as a preservative to counteract the decay in meat. So both from a taste aspect, a flavoring aspect, and from a preserving aspect, it makes sense what Jesus' words, what, what he would say about salt. And if the salt loses its saltiness, if it's not effective in flavoring, if it's not effective in, 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 in holding off decay, it's good for nothing. Might as well be thrown out. Salt has to be salty. <laughs> and it has to be applied to be effective. So why salt? In a general sense, what I believe Jesus is conveying here in, in, in saying that we are salt is, is that while salt is not something that you really see really visible or, or, or something that, that is heard, obviously, it, it is something that permeates everything it comes in contact with. And its effects are unmistakable. Let's leave it at that for now. Let's talk about light. Why light? While salt has this more invisible nature and it's something that can be sensed, light is something that is seen. It penetrates the darkness. Light penetrates the darkness. Jesus said of himself in John 12, 46, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Jesus was the light that showed us more clearly what God is like. He lights our path. He transforms our lives. He, he dispels darkness. And, and we, could, we could preach an entire sermon about all the aspects of light. And I have preached sermon before about Jesus being the light of the world. But, but let's leave it again at that. And, and just in general terms, I believe, again, what Jesus is trying to convey here is, is the same as salt, is that it permeates whatever it comes in contact with, and its effects are unmistakable. And Jesus says, you are salt, you are light, you should permeate everything you come in contact with, the, the effects of your life should be unmistakable. And then as I think about this, in this passage of Jesus talking about how we should influence our world, how we should live in our world, in this kind of chaotic world of political unrest and religious turmoil and whatever it might be, it feels like something's missing in this list. I mean, he's speaking about being an influence, right? And, and something's missing. It's the sound aspect. <laughs> like, why didn't he also add, you are the roosters of the earth? Or, or the bullhorns, or whatever you want to lose, use. He doesn't say anything about sound. He doesn't. Say, here's the three-point sermon of how to be an effective witness. Here's the Romans road. He, he, he doesn't say anything about that. Now, I don't want to make too big a deal out of this because we've talked about this last night, how we see one aspect of something and then we, we get a fuller picture the more we dig into God's word. The same is true here. We could certainly not make a case by any stretch that 
that our witness just totally has to be our actions and our attitudes, and it has nothing to do with the words we speak? Of course not. There's plenty of other scripture that, that teaches us to witness also with our words, but but what we, what we do see here, I believe, and what Jesus is saying is the starting place, the starting place has to be your attitudes and your actions and probably the greatest potential for impact that you have is your life, how you live, your attitudes, your actions. Jesus knew the importance of what would later come to, be fi- come to be defined as lifestyle evangelism, I guess. He knew that if, if people were going to come into the kingdom of God, if people were gonna be moved to a position of faith in him and praising God and giving glory, verse 16 says that's what the, that's what the result of this is, that's what the aim of it, that's what the goal of this is, of being salt and light, is that people would be moved into this place of bringing praise and, and honor and glory to God. If that's gonna happen, then, then our attitudes and our actions are of utmost importance. Either we will draw people towards a relationship with the Father, or we will push them away. He's pleading with his people then and now to live in a way that would draw people toward the Father, toward the kingdom of God. And Jesus suggests here that it can go one of two ways. The salt can lose its saltiness and be ineffective. The light can be hidden and be ineffective. Meaning Christians, we can be ineffective in our witness to the world around us. We can draw or attract people to the presence of Jesus or we can repel. Because Jesus talks about the potential of unsalty salt and light that is hidden, I think it's worth our time to reflect a little bit this evening. What does that look like? What does that look like to be unsalty salt and hidden light? I have some ideas that I think are not just my own, but let's talk about them. Let, let, let's wrestle with this a little bit. What, what does it look like if Jesus says there's potential here for you to, to not be salty and have the light hidden? What does that look like? One, I think, is a, the, the confrontational Christian. The, the in-your-face Christian. The, the, the one who is, you know, everything is a, everything is a, a, a confronting the person who drives up beside you at the stoplight and rolls down his window and says, hey, do you know you're going to hell? Now, now I want to be careful with this because I believe there are times when Jesus calls us to be confrontational. And I'm not by nature that guy, the confrontational guy. But there have been times when I have felt like in order to be obedient to the Spirit and what I sensed he was leading me to at the time, I had to be confrontational. I'll never forget this guy, Sean, who lived across from the street, across the street from our church in Florida. And he was, he was in this housing project there, and he had had, a, I think, a motorcycle accident and had a, a brain injury. And there was, there was a problem there, but he used this problem even magnified it to, uh, to get by with things. Well, he came and walked across the street one Sunday to our church, and so we got to know him, and we started ministering to him. We started helping him. We started doing whatever we could. We tried to speak into his life. We loved on him. We, you know, we were trying to be salt and light to this guy. And I remember one day, I don't remember why, but he had to get out of his apartment. They probably were kicking him out. I'm not sure, but we, we helped him. We looked all over. Where could he go? And we found this place 
over on the coast of Florida, this, this uh, place where he could live, and they would help work with you to, to, to do work there and potentially possibly to get a job. And, and it, this was a pretty big deal to move him. And, and, you know, when we moved him, he didn't want to lose his stuff, and his stuff was junk, but it was his stuff. And so we're going to help him get this stuff into, a, into a, a storage unit. And we went to move him, and he had this big dog. And let's, say, let's just say this, he didn't make the dog go outside to do his business. <clears throat> oh, it was a mess. And we got him moved and got him, and got it, took him down to the coast. I remember dropping him off there, and I thought, this is kind of exciting. This is a place where it looks like there can be structure in his life that will be really good. And it wasn't a week later, and he was kicked out of that place for just ridiculous behavior. And leading up to that time, I had be, be started to become kind of more confrontational with him. And at that time, I, I felt like the Holy, and, you know, I, you know, I want to just be compassionate and, and love, and you know, but I felt like at that time, in order to be faithful to Jesus, to be faithful to the Holy Spirit, I had to get in his face and confront him. I, I felt like this was a deciding moment in his life. And I told him that. I said, Sean, you've been with us a long time. Now you know. You know the truth. And we've urged you over and over to, to submit to Jesus Christ. And you've kind of you know, went along with it. Now is the time. This is the time where you either make a decision to walk with Jesus or we cannot keep walking with you. It was hard. Especially when he chose not to keep walking with us and not to walk with Jesus. So I tell you that to say what I'm saying now doesn't mean that there isn't ever a time when Jesus, but, but I'm, I'm talking about the people who are just, that's their bent. Confrontation is everything. Confrontation over relationships every time. Some years ago, we spent a few days in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I believe it was actually when we were on sabbatical. And this kind of unsalty salt and hidden light was the people who we drove down this street in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And on this side was the river, and there was a park along the river. And there was very clearly a gay pride festival going on in the park. And over on this side of the street was Christians lined on the sidewalk with signs that literally said things like, you're going to hell. And they were shouting. They were actually shouting across. We're driving slowly because there's a whole line of traffic. And they're shouting across the street, across us, to people that are walking in the park in this festival, condemnation. Unsalty salt is like the people in Ohio, in our state, who in a community north of us, there was this growing tension between this church in the community and the strip club. And so the church people started picketing outside of the this, this strip club. And they started taking pictures of guys coming out of the strip club and publicizing, trying to shame and embarrass them. And the strip club fought back and said, well, if you can do that, we can do that. So they started picketing in front of the church on Sunday morning. And there was just this growing tension. And this international ministry to those caught in sex trafficking, or not sex, but, but uh, what do you call it? That business. They came alongside the church and said, you know, let's try something different. And they actually, this national ministry went to the strip club and talked to the owners and, and, and actually got the owners of the strip club to invite ladies from the church to come when the place was closed and actually meet with the girls 
and to talk to them about life, to listen to them, to pray with them. And it was kind of an odd thing that they would actually open. I don't know how all that happened. But you know what? The church said no. No. They kept picketing. Kept taking pictures. Kept shaming. And something inside of us, something inside of me says, it's about time we stick it to all this sin in the world. there's another deeper place in me that weeps over that. We were driving down that street in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania with Christians shouting words of condemnation and gays gesturing back and just this tension. Somehow deep inside of me, I knew this is not what Jesus had in mind when he said, You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And I remember even driving, trying to picture in my mind, where would Jesus be if he were here right now? And I don't think he was on the street sidewalk shouting words of condemnation. I believe he would be walking the sidewalks Talking to someone saying, tell me, what's happening in your life? Let, let me show you a better way. And we, 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 we wrestle with it. We struggle with that again because understand me here. Jesus never can, would condone their sin. Not a chance. But Jesus came to set people free from the chains of sin. Not to shame them because they're chains because they're bound in chains. He wanted to set them free. And, and we don't, we don't I've, I've talked about this a couple times. We don't get it. We, we don't get how this absolute compassion, mercy, and grace can coexist with this holy and just God. But Jesus somehow was a perfect combination of grace and truth. We think about the woman who is caught in adultery. We think about the prostitute who who washed his feet with the perfume and her tears and wiped his feet with her hair. And somehow, somehow Jesus, through unconditional love, ministered to them, but not in a way that said, "It's, it's okay, it's no big deal, your sin is no big. No. But he invited them out of that. Oh, God, show us how to be that kind of salt and light in our world. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus was a confrontational kind of guy. He did get in people's faces. But who? Did he get in the face of? His harshest criticism was reserved for the religious, for the self-righteous. And he also didn't shy away from getting in the face of his true followers, those who said, yes, we will follow you. As he told them to count the cost of being a disciple, you're going to have to die so it's not that Jesus was some softy, but, but we get it backwards sometimes. There, there is something backwards about us raising our voices in condemnation about the sin out there and abortion and this and the liberals and whatever, and we go down the list, but we won't get in each other's faces in the church about things like gossip and materialism and sowing dissension in the brotherhood. Those sins that seem common in church, there's something backwards when we attack the sin out there and are just okay with it in here. 
approaching the world from a posture of unbridled condemnation. I think that's a glimpse of what Jesus was talking about here when he said the salt can lose its saltiness and the light can be hidden. Another way I I believe that our salt becomes unsalty or light hidden is the holier than thou Christian. These are the the more smug and self-righteous types and I'm going to tell you I struggle with this one a whole lot more than being the confrontational in your face. These are the ones who are not as vocal as in your face Christians, but their hearts are just as judgmental. They don't engage with sinners in a confrontational way, but they don't engage with sinners at all. They're more like, those in the story of the Good Samaritan who just passed by the person in need on the other side of the road, kind of looking down their noses at them. Like I said, I struggle with this one more than the other one. When we first moved to Ohio, we lived in a little village named, uh, called Plumwood, and I was there probably preparing a sermon. I don't know. I always sat at the dining room table to do that, and that's where I was. And I heard the front door kind of slam, and Charlotte comes in. Hun, come out here. Something's going on. What's going on? There's someone beating up a woman out in front of our house. Oh, I wanted to sit there and prepare my sermon. I didn't want to let him be foolish. But the look she gave me said, you better come out here. And I did. And I didn't want to confront. I didn't want to get involved. I didn't want to. That ended well. The guy saw me walking towards him and decided to leave. Thank goodness. The woman was a bloody mess. There's times, and, and Charla, you, you have to know her, her heart beats for those on the margins, the underprivileged. And here I am. I'll give them one chance, but man. She's always kind of tugging me back in. That's a picture of unsalty salt and hidden light. When we can't get involved in their lives because they're just, they've made their choices. Approaching the world from a stance of looking down your nose. Unsalty salt and hidden light. Or it's the all about me, Christian, the one who's so wrapped up in his own pursuits that just doesn't have time to be bothered with, with being salt and light. So, and sometimes it's, a, it's kind of a subtle self-centeredness where maybe, maybe not even all that intentional, but we just get busy with things and pretty soon our lives are just consumed in our own pr- pursuits. Or sometimes it is a, an intentional thing of wanting to draw attention to ourselves and it's all about me. It dims and dulls our witness. Or it's the cosmetic Christian, the, the Christians who have a, a veneer of Christianity, but it doesn't go any deeper than the skin. And so they try to use their words to talk about Christ at times, but there's nothing there to back it up. It doesn't change their character. Christ hasn't changed their character, hasn't changed their values. So while they try to use words to point people to Jesus, it's no impact, no real influence, because they aren't living it. Let's turn the corner. It's worth our time because Jesus says it's possible to be unsalty salt, hidden light. It's worth our time to reflect on that, what that looks like. But then he goes on to say, you are the light. You are the light. And and, and when that light shines, people come to praise and glorify God.
when you are salt, salty salt, and when you are light that is not hidden, you are a flavoring influence, stopping the decay of sin in, the, in, in our families, in our communities, shining a light in the darkness, lighting a path to Jesus. I want to share two stories as we wrap things up here this evening of salt and light Christians, one from the Bible and one from contemporary life. In Acts chapter 9, and we, we were in Acts chapter 9 last night, but later in that chapter we read about a, a lady named Tabitha, translated Dorcas, from Joppa, who was doing good, helping the poor. The Bible only gives us a, a little bit of a glimpse into her life in Acts chapter 9. She lived during the first century uh, A.D. and made her home in Joppa. She, she proved herself to be one who just loved people and served people, and she poured out her life for people. And when she died, she left the church in Joppa grief-stricken. Leaders of the congregation called for the apostle Peter who was visiting a neighboring city. And Peter was, you know, by this time renowned for his supernatural uh, power that he operated in. And the church doubtless hoped that, that maybe he would be able to restore Dorcas to life or something good would happen if, if Peter would come. And so he comes to the place and, and he, he found widows there who Dor Dorcas had ministered to, had helped had brought some of the many coats and garments that she made for them. And, and, and I don't know, maybe there was some older widows who, whose hands were too feeble to sew for themselves. Maybe there was young ones who were busy with their children and she had helped. But anyway, there's, the, there's this group of people there that she, that she had helped. And Peter apparently was touched by this scene. And, and he sends them all out of the room and he, he kneels down and prays. And, and Peter spoke words of power and authority of Jesus over Dorcas, and she was raised from the dead. He then presented her alive to the congregation at Joppa, and the result was that many people believed in the Lord. And there's the obvious reason there. This miracle had happened. This woman was dead and she's alive. I'm, I'm going to believe. But, but I think there's another less obvious thing that was going on there. The reason people were there to see this miracle happen is because of how Dorcas had ministered to their lives. And they cared. And they were paying attention. And I think in this whole salt and light thing, there's, there's, yes, there's the obvious, there's the miraculous, there's the powerful, powerful move of God, but a lot of times there's the background work of salt and light Christians who have done something with their lives and lived their lives in a way that puts people in the atmosphere or in the place to be there when the power of God comes. And I don't think Jesus wants us to underestimate the power of sim a simple good deed done in his name. And I'm guessing there's much of that in this congregation. And I'm guessing if you're one of them who does much of that, you downplay it. Oh, I, I, just, I just helped him fix the plumbing or... I, <sighs> Don't underestimate the power of a good deed. And pray. Pray. Live your life in an attitude of observation and pray that, that this little deed that you might do might open this person up some way to the presence and the power of Jesus in a way that will transform them. Friends, let, let's, not, let's not live our lives just, just kind of outside of this realization that everything has the potential of being kingdom work. When we're tuned into Jesus and, and then, then making clothes for widows can become a powerful witness that brings people into a relationship where all of a sudden they encounter 
the power, the pres- the power of the gospel in a life-changing way. As far as we know, Dorcas had no idea the impact she was having on people. She, she never doesn't appear to have any kind of leadership role in the church, was not trying to be known, but oh, how God used her. You know, I found out there's, I had heard of Dorcas societies that were named after her, and I, I just found out recently there's one in our town of Mary's, there's still a Dorcas society who is about doing good for the poor and for widows. She would have never set out to do this, but all these thousands of years later, a couple thousand years later, there's still groups ministering in her name. She was salt and light. One more story. Lee Strobel, some of you may know that name, a former atheist and now a a well-known Christian author and speaker shares the story of Ron Bronski. Ronnie had been a member of a street gang in Chicago. And a rival gang had beaten up his brother. And so Ronnie was going to get revenge because that's what street gangs in Chicago do. And so he waited outside a building where Gary, the one who had been responsible for beating his brother was was hanging out with some of his gang and he waited in the shadows until they came out of the building and then he stepped in behind them and he shouted out his gang name and shot went to shoot his gun and it just clicked and they turned and looked at him and saw him there with a gun and so they scattered and he chases he runs full tilt after Gary's following Gary And he shoots again, and this time the gun fires, and it hits Gary in the back, and he drops to the ground. And Ronnie walks up to him and kicks him, turns him over, and holds the gun up to his head, pulls the trigger, and it's locked. And so he panics, and he throws the gun down, and he runs away. Now he knows that he's in trouble, not only from this other gang, but from the law. And so he says, I got to get out of here. Got to get out of town. So he takes his wife. I, I believe he was married at that time. No, actually, it was his girlfriend at that time. Leaves in the middle of the night, heads out west all the way to Portland, Oregon. In Portland, Ronnie gets a job. And he sets about to trying to make something a little better of his life. And in this job where he's working, there's some men who are Christians. And they start loving on this hardened Chicago young criminal guy. They invite him into their circle of friendship. They're just there. He starts to get curious about what makes these guys tick. He asks some questions and they begin to share their faith with him. And Ronnie Bronski gives his life to, life to Jesus Christ. He's saved. He goes on to become a part of the church, an upstanding member of the church, an upstanding member of the community. But there's something gnawing away at his inside. He's been... He's, Become right with God, but not with society. There's still this arrest warrant in Chicago for him. What does Ronnie do? He pulls together some hard-earned money, kisses his wife and his child by now goodbye, gets on a train or a bus, I think it was a train actually, goes back to Chicago turns himself in, goes in front of the judge, and this is where Lee Strobel comes into the story. He's a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. He's an atheist at the time, and he's covering the courts, and he hears all the time guys saying, I didn't do it. You know, I was framed. I didn't, I'm not guilty. 
And here he hears Ronnie Bronsky come in, who had gotten free. I mean, there was an arrest warrant for him, but the cops weren't looking for him anymore. They were just probably glad he, this guy was out of town. And here he comes in and he says, I'm guilty. I was the one who did that. And not only am I guilty, I'm guilty of attempted murder because I wanted to kill him. I was trying to kill him. And Lee Strobel, this atheist, said that story shook me so much that it drew me towards Jesus. Imagine that, that Ronnie, not preaching the gospel, not, not, you know, just simply living his life as Christ directed, turning himself in. He becomes a key part of why Lee Strobel comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Lee goes on to write books like The Case for Christ, The Case for Christmas, The Case for Easter, books that have an amazing impact in bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. See that chain of events? But but let's not, there's sensational parts of that story. Ronnie coming back and turning himself in and Lee comes to Christ and Lee writes books that leave. But what about those salt and light Christians on the job in Portland, Oregon, who just look at this Chicago gang, gang member and rather than writing him off and staying in their tight little circle, they invite him in. They say, yeah, be our buddy. They start loving on him. Now I'm going to guess that some of you work in a business where everybody's a Christian and that's okay. But I'm going to guess some of you work in an environment around people who don't know Jesus. And I think in this whole salt and light thing, part of what Jesus is saying to us is don't underestimate the power of reaching out and becoming a friend to someone that doesn't know Jesus. Unsalty salt and hidden light is I'm too busy with my own life, I'm too busy with my family, I'm too busy with my church, I'm too busy in this bubble, I wanna live my life in a bubble, I don't wanna be bothered by people who are not like me, I don't wanna be bothered by people who don't know Jesus, I don't wanna be bothered by, I have my world that I love. I think, I think that breaks the heart of Jesus just as much as the one who's shouting across the street words of condemnation. Well, let's land the plane. There are other sermons that need to be preached about our verbal witness. Other sermons to be preached about the necessity of sharing our faith. Putting into words our testimony, salvation and redemption. But I think in our encounter with Jesus this evening, he's simply inviting us into this place of understanding what it means to be salt and light. What it means to live our lives in a way that draws people to Christ. Just because they see something in us that they want. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Make sure the salt stays salty. Make sure the light is not hidden. Your, your attitudes with people, your actions 
with people are the starting point and I believe have some of the greatest potential of pointing people to Jesus and drawing them into a relationship with him. And I think this is especially pertinent for us in this time, in this day and age, when there's this thing in our evangelical circles that we must, we must take control if Christianity is going to flourish. We need to be in power. We need to be in a position of power. That's so not the words of Jesus. It's so not how he lived his life. Father, we come before you this evening. Just humbled by the fact that you have invited us into this plan of revealing yourself to the world around us. You've invited us into this plan of being the ones who make your glory known in this world. Forgive us where we've gotten it so backwards. Lord, open our eyes tonight to see what it means to be salt and light in our world today, tomorrow, in the normal places that we walk and live and minister. Change our hearts, God. Change our hearts with your message. Change our hearts with your plans, your purposes, your agenda. We invite it, Jesus, we do. It is your name we pray.